Challenge Books Limited is the ministry arm of Robert D. Foster with its office in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This spiritually motivational tape, along with his books and pamphlets, are geared especially for the man in business, the professional in his office, and the dedicated members of each and every church. The Challenge is a nonprofit organization incorporated in the state of Colorado in 1964. The two messages on this tape are about the dynamic and inspirational life of King David, the famous leader of the children of Israel some 3,000 years ago. Side one is the introduction to the man himself entitled, I Have Found David, the Son of Jesse. Side two has a fascinating question as its title, How Could David Be a Happy Man? And now, Bob Foster. The year was 1849. The Foster clan in southern Indiana decided it was time to head west. The wagon trails were going across the Oregon Trail, told, headed west across Illinois, northern Missouri, and at Omaha they made the great decision, we're going to buy land in Oregon. This they did. My daddy, Del Foster, was born in that wonderful country of eastern Oregon in 1883. Now what has that got to do with us in the 20th century? You can say, well Bob, uh, that was your life, but why build a message around it? I think one of the needs of today is to realize our root system, our background, the heritage that all of us have through our forefathers. How grateful we are that we live in a country just a couple hundred years old as a nation, but that background of 200 years and our founding forefathers, Plymouth Rock, Lexington, Concord, Valley Forge, all of this has significant influence in the 1980s. The last few years we have seen two great books great not only in their size and their price, but have had a lot of popularity. Both of them have been not only written, but have gone to TV. For instance, Haley's book on his roots out of Africa and into the Deep South. It's been controversial, but it caused a lot of people to start thinking back on, where did I come from? Who were my forefathers? What has this got to do with me in the 20th century? And of course, those of us who live in the beautiful state of Colorado are grateful for Mitchner's book, Centennial. We became a part of the Union 100 years ago. But if you read this voluminous piece of writing by Mitchner, you realize that he's going deeper than just telling the history of one of the 50 states. He's trying to portray the background of some hardy people who dared to come up along the Platte River and explore the great Rocky Mountain area. Now this has been going on for many, many years. The Bible is the story of what God has been doing through men and women over hundreds and thousands of years. And if you know your Bible, you know that some of Israel's greatest preachers, teachers, prophets 
were those who loved to recite the history of God's dealings with their own. Take the man Moses, or how about Joshua, the prophets, King David in his songs. And then you get over into the New Testament. Peter did it, and of course the beloved Apostle Paul. And that brings me to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. And I'd like to have you take your Bible right now and turn with me to this beautiful story that takes place in what is now modern Turkey, down along the Mediterranean Ocean. It's the town called Pisidia, or that's the county anyway. The little town is called Antioch. It was a Saturday morning, and Paul and his team of men had gone into the synagogue and sat and listened as the teacher or the rabbi had shared with them the reading from the law and the prophets. And then the ruler, usually one of the presiding laymen or businessmen who led in the synagogue worship, said to Paul and the men, Fellas, do you have a word of exhortation for all of us? If you do, say it now. You say, well, Bob, uh, where did you ever read anything like that? Well, it's the 15th verse. I paraphrased it just a little bit. Well, that was all Paul needed. He loved to get up and say so. And beginning with verse 16, he begins a beautiful message on the root system of the children of Israel. Now, let's drop down to verse 21. And this is the way it reads. And afterward, the children of Israel desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And he ruled for a space of forty years. And when God had removed Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also God gave testimony, saying, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, who shall fulfill all my will. And that's what I'd like to chat with you about today. That little phrase found right in the middle of verse 22. God giving testimony and saying, I have found David, the son of Jesse. Now, a little later on in the chapter... If you look over in verse 36, it says, David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, died and was laid with his fathers. We're not going to look at it right now because we want to sort of pitch our tent right here in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. But sometime, if you have an opportunity, look up 1 Kings 15 verses 3 through 5. Maybe you just want to pencil the reference down now. We'll look it up later, but let me just share it with you. It says this. It's concerning his grandson, Jeroboam, who was reigning, and had just come to the end of uh, his time on the throne, and it was a very unpleasant time, a real low point in the history of, of Israel. And it says this in 1 Kings 15:3. David did that which was right, in the eyes of the Lord, and turn not aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life, 
save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Well, now, put those three verses together. Acts 13.22, Acts 13.36, and then 1 Kings 15.3-5. And you've got a picture that here was an unusual man out of an unusual background. And God gives testimony. I have found David, the son of Jesse. Before we begin to dissect a little bit and uh, rummage around on verse 22, let's talk about David a little bit himself. Let me just remind you of some of the facts about this marvelous man from the Old Testament of our scriptures. His name is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. More space is devoted in the entire Bible to David than any other man, including the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four books in the Old Testament that feature his life story. Plus that, his own writings are at least 73 songs in what we call the Psaltery, the book of Psalms. Now, the Bible does not offer us its heroes like David, all wrapped up in cellophane. But these men have the dirt of life under their fingernails. You ask the average man today in the street what he knows about King David, and whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, he'll probably mention two things, David's greatest victory and David's worst defeat. You remember as a boy, David with his little slingshot killed the nine-foot-six-inch giant Goliath. That was his great victory and his great defeat when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Uriah. David Redpath has edited a, a beautiful little book on this man after God's own heart, and he says this, The Bible never flatters its heroes. The Bible tells it just like it is, against the background of human breakdown and failure, in order that we may magnify the grace of God and recognize that it is the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. Ooh, I like that. Thank you, Alan Redpath. It's the delight of the Holy Spirit to work on the platform of human impossibilities. Well, David was a man of extreme contrasts. He was versatile and adaptable. He was a shepherd. He was a fugitive. He was a king, as well as a poet, who composed so many songs that were so practical that now, centuries later, they still inspire people around the world. He was a skilled and sensitive musician who could calm the evil temperament of a Saul, or he could lead vigorously his people to worship. 
and yet order the murder of one of his friends. You remember David refused to see his own son for five years? And yet at Absalom's death, he wept uncontrollably. Yes, David is well known in history and 20th century society. Christians and Jews alike have idolized him. Hollywood has exploited him, and artists have expertly sculptured him. Many parents are proud to name their sons David. Well, how do you comprehend such a mixture, all wrapped up in human clay, called David, the son of Jesse? Someone has penned it. Abraham may have excelled David in faith. Moses may have excelled David in concentrated fellowship with God. Elijah may have excelled David in fiery force of enthusiasm. Daniel may have excelled David in governmental competency. But none were so many-sided. David has an irresistible fascination, be it a little boy, a grown man, or a granddaddy. One of my favorite biblical writers is Alexander McLaren. Listen the way he puts it. With his men, David was full of resource. He was prudent in counsel. He was swift as lightning in action. David was frank and generous, bold yet gentle. He was cheery in defeat. He was calm in peril. David was always patient in privations, modest and restrained in victory, and always gracious with his enemy. David a born leader, and a king among men. Several years ago, my wife and I were privileged to be in Dallas, Texas. And after a beautiful weekend of meeting with friends, we thought, let's go down to one of the great churches of downtown Dallas and hear one of the saints of God a gifted orator by the name of Dr. W.A. Criswell. It so happens on that Sunday morning, he was speaking from the life of David. Now these are not his exact words, but as I was taking notes that morning, here's what I came up with from the lips and heart of Dr. Criswell. Speaking of David, I'm quoting now. When we equate God's gift with natural endowment, we have really missed it. It's not how a man looks. It's not his stature. It's not his physical form or presence, whether majestic or menial. It's not the way he dresses. It isn't the gift of speech or a pleasant smile. What is it? It's God. It's God who makes a man shine and flame and burn. 
It's God who makes him resplendent and incandescent. That, my friend, is a gift of the Lord, a grace gift. Well, as you listen today, I want you to know that God gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse. Now, I want you to notice as we go back now to Acts 13.22, that the Lord says three things here that he wants to give testimony about. First of all, he gives testimony that he has made a discovery. I have found David, the son of Jesse. And then he gives testimony that David wants to make a dedication, a man after my own heart. And then a biblical declaration, who shall fulfill all my will. Let's repeat. The discovery, I have found David. The dedication, he's a man after my own heart. The declaration of Scripture, he shall fulfill all my will. I think it's very, very interesting that in Scripture, God is unashamed to let you know the heritage of great men. Now, if I was to ask you, who's Jesse? You'd probably be stumped to really tell us much about the man. In fact, the scripture is very modest in its story about the father of David. We do know that he was a successful farmer, rancher. He was very prosperous in having children. We don't know exactly how many daughters he had, but uh, he had eight sons at least. He must have been a godly man because he was a very close friend of Samuel, the man of God. God gives testimony, I have found David, the son of Jesse. I think there's several things here for us to remember. Number one, David, as the son of Jesse, was going to grow up not in the city, not in the courts of learning, not centered around King Saul, but down in the hills of Judea, around the little town of Bethlehem. That's where God found David. You know, it's exciting to realize that God has his hand upon men. In the book of Psalms, David is talking about the greatness of God. And in Psalm 139, he says, While I was yet in my mother's womb, the Lord knew all about me. Oh, isn't that wonderful? The discovery of Almighty God, of a man, even before he was born, that has much to say to the whole abortion question today, that God has got his hand upon men long before they ever make their entrance into the world. God has his hand upon David because for the next 60 to 70 years, this man 
more than almost anybody else in the Old Testament, is going to be used by God as a very unique tool. But then notice God also gives testimony that this man David, the son of Jesse, was a man after mine own heart. Evidently, God had dedicated this man to himself. Evidently, Jesse had dedicated his son. Samuel had dedicated him. But also, David had dedicated himself someplace out there on those Judean hills, under the beautiful stars of night, and said, Oh, God, if you've got a job for me to do, I'm willing to do it. And the Lord saw the purpose of that young boy's heart. And he gives testimony here in Acts 13, 22. David is a man after mine own heart. Now you have to know scripture to realize that God isn't saying here that David was sinless. We know that from 1 Kings 15, 5 that David turned not aside from anything that God commanded him to do all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. If you read Psalm 51, where David confessed his sin and how he had really messed up his life and the life of Uriah and the life of the nation and the life of his own household, you realize that God isn't saying that David is a man without sin. He's saying he's a man after my own heart. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, so many times would say, my ultimate goal is to find out what's on the heart of God and then do it with all my heart. I believe that's what God is saying about David. Here was a young man who could take care of sheep, but with all of his heart, he wanted to know, God, what's upon your heart? That's the desire of my life. That was his dedication. That was his commitment. That was his goal in life. And then notice the third thing here in verse 22, the declaration. God gives testimony that this man shall fulfill all my will. You know, that's exciting that God does have a plan for your life and that it's possible for you to fulfill, fill to the full, all that God's strategy has for you. How many men, how many women do we know today that have as a purpose of their life to fulfill all of God's will. I remind you once again of verse 36. David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, died. And by the way, if you don't serve your own generation by the will of God, you'll never serve the coming generations. David lived 3,000 years ago. And he's probably had more of an impact after his death than even the 70 years that he was alive here upon earth. He turned not aside from anything that God commanded him 
all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. One of the favorite things that takes place in many churches is to have a testimony meeting. And people will stand up at random and give a testimony. And we give testimony of what God has done for us. He's answered prayer. He's made specific a promise. He's helped us. He's supplied us. He's been so good to us. How many times do you read that God gives testimony to a man? Well, that's what we've just read here in verse 22. God gives testimony. I've discovered a man. That man has made a dedication back to me. Therefore, he will fulfill all my will. Now, let's take up our tents and move to another portion of Scripture. I don't know how many of you men or women have ever gone camping, particularly when you're looking for deer or um, moose or whatever it might be, particular large game. You usually set up a base camp, and then from that base camp you'll go to out camps. And they're usually uh, just a tent or a piece of canvas, and it's very temporary. Well, that's what we're going to do right now. We've had our base camp at Acts 13. Now we're going to go to another out camp, and it's found in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 78, the last three verses of the chapter. And by the way, I love this chapter because it's the story of the history of Israel set to music by David's song leader, the cliff barrels of 3,000 years ago. His name was Asaph. And in Jerusalem, everybody knew him because he not only led the great choirs, but he also had an orchestra with all kinds of instruments. And he would write these great cantatas, and they would sing them. And Psalm 78 is one of them. And the crescendo of this, the grand finale, the Hallelujah Chorus of this song by Asaph are verses 70 and 72. Now, if I had the ability, I'd sing this, but uh, that would be the end of the cassette right now. So I'm just going to read it to you, and you can just sort of imagine a great choir with an orchestra background in the city of Jerusalem singing this. And here's the way it goes. Beginning with verse 70. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfold, from following the ewes, great with young. And God brought David to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So David fed those people according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided those people by the skillfulness of his hands. Would you notice the three things that God says he did with David? He chose him, he took him, he brought him. No longer is it David, the son of Jesse. Now it's David, the servant of God. God chose David. 
And by the way, God still is in the business of choosing his men. And he does it on the basis of his own sovereignty and grace and love. And after he has chosen his man, then he takes him from the sheepfold. I'm sure that David must have been very restless. Lord, how long do you want me to stay here? No answer. God, I've been taking care of these sheep a long, long time. No answer. Finally, he has an opportunity to go up and fight the battle with the great big giant. And what happens? He goes back to the sheepfold. Lord, don't you remember what I did for you and your people up there in the valley of Shechem and how I defeated Goliath? No answer. But with patience and patience and patience, God finally takes him. And you know what David was doing when God took him? He was following the ewes with their young. Now, he wasn't leading the rams. He was following the ewes, who were highly pregnant. We don't know much about shepherd life here in the United States, but it is a very lowly occupation, particularly for those who have to be the lammers, those who stay near the ewes that are great with young. A lamb is rather a dumb animal and particularly a female, just prior to her conceiving of her little lambs, and oftentimes they had twins, they become very obstinate, they develop a tremendous temper, and they don't want anybody to help them. And this was David's job, to make sure, as a shepherd, that they got those little babies safely into this world. God took his man from following the ewes with their young. And what did he do with him? He brought him to Jerusalem to rule Jacob, God's people, and Israel, God's heritage. You see, all those years on the backside of the desert, as Moses, his predecessor, had learned, he was getting the lessons. It was a preparatory school for a more active and noble life. And really there is no such thing as obscurity with God. God has his plan. God has his man. And in his time he brings them together. And that means in David's life to be the king of Israel. Now we're down to verse 72. And this is the climax of the climaxes. God chose his man, God took his man, God brought his man. And now will you notice in 72, David was equipped. And he does two things. David fed the people from the integrity of his heart and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And friend of mine, we need to have both. We need to have the life, and we need to have 
the witness. We need to have the heart, and we need to have the hands. You notice that he fed them, and he guided them. The feeding was from integrity of the heart. The guiding was with the skillfulness of the hands. Let's talk about integrity of heart, because I believe this is why David was a man after God's own heart. God saw that this man had the basic ingredients. Then God saw to it that he was trained on the backside of the hills of Bethlehem to feed sheep so that someday he could feed men out of the reservoir of his heart. And that reservoir was honest and unfeigned sincerity. That's what the word integrity in the Latin means. There was no carnal policy in King David's being. Every fiber of his life was open and above. That's why at the close of one of his great songs, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're going to feed men with quality food and not the hus and not straw if there is integrity in our own heart. And then notice in the second place here in verse 72, David guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Well, I've looked this up in various translations of the Bible, and it pretty much says the same thing. And I went to Spurgeon on the Psalms to see what he had to say. And it's a difficult passage, but I'm reminded as I think through what we have been chatting about here these last 35-40 minutes that God took this man as a shepherd boy. And on the interior of his life, there was integrity, there was honesty, there was purity, there was sincerity. He was up and above board. And then God taught this young man how to skillfully use his hands. Let's go back to the story with that giant Goliath. You remember Saul said, Okay, young man, if you want to go out and fight him and represent us, give it a try. But don't go out dressed like you are. Put on my armor. Take my shield. Take my sword. Take my breastplate. Take my helmet. Well, David wasn't about to buck, uh, you know, the system. So he thought, well, if Saul wants me to do it, let's give it a try. <laughs> and the young stripling put on all of the king's armament, and he fell down. He wasn't big enough to hold it up. He wasn't used to it. It wasn't his natural way of life. And he said, I'm sorry, king. I can't do it. And the king said, well, David, how are you going to do it? He said, I not only have this slingshot with which I have killed a bear and a lion with my own hands, but I also have the Lord God of heaven. And I believe that what I have been doing all these years out in the desert to the wild beasts 
who wanted to kill my sheep, God will help me to do to that man Goliath. And I'm sure that not only King Saul, but David's older brothers sort of smirked and said, Well, go to it, son. And that young lad went out, and he got four stones, and he put them into his bag, and won them into his slingshot, and he approached this huge giant, and he let fly, and that thing sank into the only exposed part of the whole man's anatomy, his forehead. And down he went, out colder than a turkey. He was killed. The skillfulness of David's hands. Or take the almost the opposite side. When King Saul had these tremendous temper tantrums, and it seemed like evil spirits possessed him, and he'd go into a rage, and he was beside himself. He said, somebody bring me some good music, some background music that I can listen to. And who did they bring? They brought David. And with the skillfulness of his hands, he played that harp so beautifully and so soothing and such a comfort that it seemed like the evil spirit left that wicked king. And you can just take the stories that are rehearsed in the Old Testament about King David, and you'll discover that there in the wilderness with his sheep, and as a young man under his father's tutelage, he had learned to use his hands, combined with his brains, tied in with his heart, so that prudently, and discreetly he could lead a great nation. So much so that other nations looked upon Israel in absolute amazement. The organization, the planning, the military prowess, the financial structure, the way that David prepared for the materials to build the house of God, the way he enlisted neighboring nations in peaceful settlements and treaties. He guided the people of God. Now remember, they weren't his people, they were God's people, because you read in verse 71, they were God's people, they were God's heritage. And David fed them from the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Well, as we come to the close, I've got three little lessons I believe that God wants to give to us. Three things that you can take from God giving testimony to David, the son of Jesse. Lesson number one that there is a divine plan for every man. No matter how low your beginnings, it will never debar you from any honors that the Lord may elect to confer. God does have a plan for your life. We have a lovely little piece of literature called the Four Spiritual Laws. You remember the first one? I like it. It says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
Well, you know, David discovered that 3,000 years ago, that God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. I have found David, the son of Jesse. Or, as it says here in the 78th Psalm, verse 70, I chose David, my servant, and took him from the sheepfold. Lesson number two is that God has a divine vocation for every man. Not only a plan, that's the big picture, that's the sweep, that's the game plan, our strategy in the overall, but then specifically, he's got something for you to do that's so unique that if you don't do it, it probably is not going to get done. There was a young lad in Oklahoma. He got restless as being a agent for the Oklahoma State University. He went to California. He still had red clay between his toes as he tells the story. He didn't know anybody out in California, but he wanted to go to the big city. In the providence of God, he met Dawson Trotman. He met Dr. Charles Fuller. He met Henrietta Mears. And little Billy from the hill country of Oklahoma, just a farm boy, knew nothing but agriculture. And today the whole world knows him, for his name is Bill Bright, the founder and president of Campus Crusade. You see, God chose him, and he had a plan. But God also had a divine vocation for Bill in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Don't you ever think that your position, your vocation, your job, your employment is so low that God could never use you. God's got a plan for your life. And then I want to close with the fact that there is a divine shepherd for every man. Not only a plan and a vocation, but a shepherd. The shepherd of King David is your shepherd. You remember how David starts off the 23rd Psalm? Five tremendous words. The Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. And don't ever depreciate the fact of who you are or that you have a divine shepherd who cares for your life. God gave testimony concerning David. I have found a man after my own heart who shall fulfill all my will. And today God is looking for the David's who will fill in in the 20th century out of the integrity of their heart and the skillfulness of their hands. Let's pray about it, shall we? Father, thank you for your servant David and the plan that you had for his life and the vocation that you gave to him in the palace is just as real for us today because his shepherd is our shepherd and his God is our God and the Lord of David is the Lord of the 20th century 
Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful lesson. You're speaking to us. And whatever you're asking us to do and to be, help us to do it. From the sheepfold to the palace. God, that was your plan for David. What hast thou for me to do? In your wonderful name, amen. And may the good Lord enable each one of us to be that person after God's own heart, fulfilling all his will in our generation. I want to be that person. How about you? And if you would like to order more copies of this tape or a catalog of pamphlets by Challenge Books Limited, write to us. That address is Challenge Books, Post Office Box 580, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80901. Thanks again for listening, and now turn to side two of the cassette for the answer to that fascinating question, how could David be a happy man? Once again, here's Bob Foster. Our 20th century has seen incredible man-made feats. For instance, who had ever believed that men would walk on the moon? Or the splitting of the atom? or transcontinental airline flights in just a matter of a few hours. Or consider the electronic miracles that we are seeing today, or just a small box in one office can store tens of thousands of names, of figures, of numbers, and then reproduce them just with the pressing of a button. But I'd also remind you that there are some incredible things that have been done over the years. Some 3,000 years ago, the book of Psalms was written, and it records an even more amazing feat, the fact that man can have fellowship with the living God. I believe one reason that the book of Psalms is such a delight to people of all races, all ages, is that it's so human. These are songs, 150 of them, that have been forged on the anvil of human experience, people's emotions, there's praise, and there's pessimism. There's depression, and yet there's delight. There's confidence, and there's confusion. There's anger, and there is joy. All the ups and downs that we folks enjoy, or don't enjoy, take place here in the book of Psalms. Martin Luther writes about it, and this is the way he says it. I love the Psalms. It is my book. I love them all. Oh, yes, I love all of Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But the Psalms are the dearest to my heart, and I have a particular right to call them mine. 
For they have saved me from many a pressing danger, from which no emperor, nor king, nor sage, nor even the saints could have saved me. The Psalms are my friends, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. Unquote. You know, it's interesting that Mr. Luther wrote this to the abbot of Nuremberg at a time in his life when he was being persecuted by the organized church. He didn't spell out any particular one of the Psalms, at least in that section of the letter. He just said, The book of Psalms is my consolation in my life. And I think he would agree that the book of Psalms records the amazing fact that fellowship between God and man is possible. And so I'd like to have you turn with me to this amazing book found right in the middle of your Bible. If you'll just take your Bible now and just let it sort of fall open to the middle, I think, unless you've got a big concordance and maps and other things at the end of the Bible, right in the middle is the book of Psalms. These are the songs of the children of God. And would you turn to the first page, the first song, Psalm 1. Now, the 150 songs is the hymn book of the Hebrews. There are five books, and each one of the books ends with a doxology. And the five books sort of follow the theme of the Pentateuch. Are you acquainted with the word Pentateuch? It means the five books of law. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to bother you, maybe bore you, with the division of Psalms into these five books, except to say that the first 41 Psalms pretty much follow along with the theme of Genesis. And then Psalm 42 to 72, Exodus, right on through to Psalm 107 through 150, which follows the theme of the book of Deuteronomy. Now David, the sweet singer of Israel, the harp player, the man who learned to sing and to play out under God's blue sky, starry heavens, David wrote at least 73 of these songs. Asaph, David's choir leader, wrote 12. Moses wrote some of them. And there were probably at least another dozen authors. Well, what is the theme of the book of Psalms? Well, basically, it's hallelujah. That word occurs scores and scores of times in these 150 songs. Basically, these songs are devotional in nature. Repentance having to do with historical background, messianic prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, the hallelujah songs, particularly of 
the latter portion of the book. I believe that Christ is prominent throughout the entire book. The King and the Kingdom are theme songs that constantly appear and reappear in the 150 different songs. As a young boy in my home church, these were the only songs that we could sing in our worship service. This was a tradition that was brought over from Scotland. and We'd have a man sitting up behind the preacher someplace, and he had a pitch pipe. And it was suggested that we would sing Psalm 1 to such and such a, a melody, and he would pitch uh, the particular key, and the people would start singing. And we had uh, our psaltery, our book, with all these different songs in it. And these are beautiful. And today, many young people with their guitars particularly have composed these psalms to modern uh, melodies. And they are indeed beautiful. I would like to read for you the first three verses of the songbook. And the reason I want to do it today is because I believe that this song sets the stage for the whole hymnal. I believe that what David, who we believe was the author of this song, was doing here was laying the foundation of everything else that the children of Israel were going to sing about. Now would you listen as he takes his pen and begins to write. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Amen. Or, as David would say, Selah. Selah is a Hebrew word that means so be it. <laughs> Stop and think on that. Now, there are three more uh, verses in this song, and we'll come to those a little later on. But I'd like for you to see what David is talking about in this basic song of the book of Psalms. For I believe that he is answering the question, Can a man be happy? How could David be a happy man. And he sets the tone here, the theme. He establishes the priority. For this is the introduction of God's man. And his songs will flow out of this abundant heart. Blessed is the man. And the word blessed is a very wonderful biblical word. 
used both in the Old and the New Testament. It basically means happy. Not just based upon happenstances, circumstances that make us feel good, but happy that has the root idea of joy, gratitude, praise, appreciation is the man. Really, it's in the plural, in the original language of the Hebrew. The word happy or blessed, it's blessednesses. <laughs> it's just a, a bucket full. You get out of the pump and you prime it and then you get pumping. And you don't want to take home just a, a half a bucket to the kitchen. You And so you just keep on uh, pumping until it's overflowing. And that's what it is here. David's bucket is overflowing, pressed down, shaken together, and still it overflows. Blessednesses upon blessednesses has the man that walks not, that stands not, that sits not. And then I'd have you notice, too, as we get started here, that happy is the man. Now, this is not just anybody coming down the pike. <laughs> it isn't just reaching into a crowd of 65,000 people jammed into a football stadium and plucking out one person and saying that person is happy, even though his team may be winning. He may have been drinking a little too much from a bottle he's got hidden in a, in a brown bag. That doesn't really make happiness. No, David is saying, happy is the one in 10,000, a very special person. And by the way, this is autobiographical. He is giving his own testimony here about what God has done for him in contrast to men that he sees around him as expressed in verses 4 through 6. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And David is saying, Oh, how I thank God that's not my life. Well, how could David be a happy man? Well, I believe in verses 1 through 3, he shares with us three great principles out of his own life that are the secret to happiness. Number one, get a pencil? Maybe you'd just like to put it in your Bible or write it on a piece of paper. There's three of them that I see here in these three verses. First of all, the first principle, be known by the company you avoid. Now, that's kind of the reverse <laughs> to what we hear today, huh? Birds of a feather flock together. And that's true. And we are known by the company we keep. But here he's saying, happy man, the one man in 10,000, is known by the associations that he avoids. This is negative purity. There is definite prohibitions here in this verse. 
Now, you know, we, we like to push on the positives and eliminate the negatives. Well, the Bible so oftentimes pushes the negatives because we can see them more clearly. For instance, let's take uh, as an illustration the Ten Commandments. Let's just take the commandment that starts it all off. That uh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Well, you know, that's a relative thing. I, I, somebody said, well, yeah, I'm loving the Lord God with all my heart. But then here's somebody over here who seemingly is doing it twice as much. And it becomes a personal you know, conviction of how much is much to love the Lord God, God with all thy heart. But then you get a negative commandment like, Thou shalt not steal. Well, boy, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> you know, it may be just a pencil. It may be just a, a, a little stealing uh, of a diamond ten cent store uh, variety. But you have broken the commandment of God. So here in the first verse are the negatives. Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Stand not in the way of sinners. Sit not in the seat of the scornful. Someone has said it this way. It is a sign of inward grace when the outward walk is changed. This is the power of negative thinking. This is the power of negative action. You see, your walk indicates choice. Your standing indicates commitment. And your sitting indicates convictions. So when David says, happy, excited is that one man in 10,000 that has the choice not to go in the counsel of the ungodly. He's willing to be different. He's willing to let the counsels of God indicate where he will walk. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is the positive side of Psalm 1, 1. When I decide that I will not stand in the way of sinners, this is a commitment. It doesn't just mean the standing up alongside of a bar guzzling beer. It isn't just a matter of standing alongside of a gambling table in a casino at Las Vegas. It means when sinners take their stand on an issue that's immoral and contrary to the laws of God and contrary to the wellness and the goodness of fellow mankind, I will not take that stand. That is a commitment. You see, my choice indicates my walk. My commitment indicates with whom I'm going to stand. This was Peter's big problem. When Jesus was being tried on the morning of Calvary, a little girl said, Hey, aren't you one who associates with the Nazarene? And Peter cursed and swore 
that he ever knew Jesus. You see, he did not want to take his stand alongside of his Lord and Savior, and yet, just a few weeks later, he stood practically alone on the day of Pentecost and preached that marvelous message. And 3,000 came to know the Savior. Standing indicates commitment. And then where you sit, in the seat of the scornful? No. By conviction, you do not become involved so that you sit. And sitting has the idea of continual association. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I don't believe that these oxen were sitting down on the ground yoked together. But the idea that of association so tied in with yoke that they were sitting in the seat of the scornful. And God says, no deal. You just don't play that ball game. Your heart is beating to a different drum. The tune that excites you, that makes you happy, is not by walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scornful. I wish it were possible for me to be right there with you. And we'd take a pencil and a piece of paper, and we'd make three columns. And in the first column, we'd place three words. Maybe you'd like to do it right now. Walk not, stand not, sit not. Now that's on the left-hand side of your page. Where you don't walk, where you don't stand, and where you don't sit. Now in the middle column, right alongside of walk not, put the word console. Alongside of where it says stand not, you put the word way, W-A-Y. And then where it says sit not, you put the word seat. So in the middle column, you have the three words console, way, Seat. And then over on the right-hand side, opposite of walk not and counsel, you put the word ungodly. Down a ways, you put the word sinner. And down a ways, you put the word scornful. And you can see the progression of ungodly and then sinners and then scornful. And the deeper you get involved with people, who don't love your God, you'll find that where you used to walk, now you're standing. And where you used to stand, now you're sitting. Because you would walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You would stand in the way of sinners. And you would sit in the seat of the scornful. But it's a sign of inward grace when your outward walk is so changed that now blessed is the man that doesn't do these things. Are you known by the company you avoid? You used to love them, huh? And by the way, you should still love them because they too need to know of the grace of God. They too need to know of the distinctive that Christ can make in their life. But the things that you used to love, now you hate. And the company you used to keep, 
Now it's gone sour. And the habits that you used to enjoy and relish and hardly wait to get involved in them, now they're just a dark brown taste in your mouth. This is the difference that the grace of God makes, because now you are known by the company you avoid. Now David wrote this from his own experience. He never was in bad company. He lived a good life. He had a rich heritage. He had a wonderful dad. He had some very jealous brothers, but I'm sure that they were all brought up to fear God, to love Jehovah, to honor the king, to revere Samuel, the high priest of God. But he knew in his own heart the appetites of the flesh. He knew the propensity of his own life to walk and to stand and to sit. Now notice the second principle on which David built his life, which could make him a happy man. And that was, he was known by the things that he loved. This is the positive pursuit. The negative purity in verse 1. The positive pursuit in verse 2. His delight is in the law of God. And in that law, he meditates day and night. I believe that the happy man is a round-the-clock Christian. He's just the same at 10.30 at night as he is at 10.30 in the morning. There's consistency about him. Why? Because he's known by the things that he loves. By the way, what is your delight? What really turns you on, gets you excited, causes you to be a happy man? A good meal? A new car? A pay increase? Increased responsibility down at the company? Acceptance at church so now that you are on the official... And all these things are good. And we shouldn't deny them. And we shouldn't turn our back on them. But David says, My delight is in the law of the Lord. And if in verse 1, David wanted to be careful where he sat, in verse 2, he wanted to be consistent where he soaked. <laughs> uh I don't take too many baths. I take showers. I, when you say I don't take too many baths, why well, uh, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Uh, I usually take a shower. But occasionally, we like to go over to Glenwood Springs, which is about a two or three hour drive from our ranch where we live. And there the hot mineral waters are great to soak in. In fact, they have two sections to the swimming pool over there. One is where the water it must be close to 100 degrees. And then they cool it off with cold water for the regular swimming. And I love, as much as I can, just to go in there and sit and soak. That's what he's talking about here in verse 2. <laughs> he's going to the spiritual Glenwood Springs, and he says, My delight is to soak in the law of the Lord. And you know, the Indians who first discovered 
these hot mineral springs found therapy in them and many of their diseases and many of their ailments were taken care of not only by soaking in them but by drinking some of it arthritis uh, bone ailments muscular ailments general fatigue well I'm sure that King David after some of his running from Saul and some of taking his men out to battle and some of the tremendous pressures that he felt as he sat there on the throne helping to rule the great nation of Israel he'd go back into the privacy of his own home and delight in the law of the Lord and we encourage you to become a person who loves to soak in the Holy Scripture, to get to know the law of God. Now, he uses the word law here differently than what most of us are used to. We think of prohibitions, you know, 55 miles an hour speed limit. That's the law. Anything more than that, you're breaking it. In fact, on interstates and in major cities, anything less than the law you're also arrested for because you also are in problems if you go too slow. The law says on a one-way street that you go the way the arrows point. That's the law. Well, that isn't what he's talking about here when he talks about the law of the Lord. It isn't the negatives. It's the positives. You remember in the first chapter of Joshua, he just become the leader, not just the military leader, but now uh, he'd taken over from Moses and the whole leadership of these million people, his responsibility to lead them into the land of promise. And Joshua is commanded by God to spend time in the law of the Lord and to meditate into it and to make it his own. How do you do that? Well, you do it by reading it. This is a book. It's a library of 66 books. And God wants us to be known by that which we love. And that is the law of the Lord. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation day and night. I not only want to read it, but I want to study it. And that's what we're doing right now. We're studying the first psalm to find out how could David be a happy man? How can I be a happy man 3,000 years after this was written? The same delights of David must be become my delights. Because if he's a happy man, then I want to emulate him. Hey, David, what excited you? Tell me about it. And he said, okay, Bob, get delighted in the Holy Bible. And so I study it. And then I find something that I want to memorize. And I write it on the tables of my heart. And so whether I have a Bible or not, day or night or wherever I am, I can just review those verses. As I'm sitting here talking to you, I reach into my pocket and I pull out a little black piece of leather. And in this piece of leather, I've got some verses. And I just take the one that's right on the top. 
Here's a verse that I have memorized, and I review it from time to time. That's why I carry it with me. It's John 13:34, and it says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Wow! <laughs> this is a new commandment. This isn't the Ten Commandments. This is something brand new. Love one another. Well, how do I love? Just as he loved me. Romans 5.8 is another one I've written on the tables of my heart. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, just writing that up on my heart and just sitting here and sharing with you right now excites me. Well, that God has given me a commandment, and that commandment, that law is, Hey, Bob, you love other people just as I have loved you. Well, how did God love me through Jesus Christ? Infinitely. In while I was yet a sinner. You know, I can love people who love me. I can love people who are my peers, and I think that maybe they potentially can love me. But do I have the capacity to love my enemies? Do I have the capacity, as Jesus did, to love those who crucified him and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the new commandment. And what a thrill to write those upon the tables of your heart. You know, another wonderful thing is just what he talks about here. And in his law do I meditate day and night. That's where we get the idea of soaking, absorbing, just letting your mind rummage through the Word of God. Think God's thoughts after you. How many men today, particularly I meet, who are all uptight because of pressures of business, the ups and downs and fluctuations of the stock market, the concern for their own business. I talked to a man just recently who's in real estate in, in Illinois, going through a down period, and he said last year over 4,000 businesses, real estate businesses in the state of Illinois, bellied up. What do you mean bellied up? Well, it means they went out of business. Because the market is so poor. And you know, this causes a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of frustration. Not just for the non-Christian, but Christians are caught in this. Well, how do you handle these pressures of life? May I suggest one way? Don't get all wrapped up with your thoughts and your solutions and what man has to say and carnal policies. But think God's thoughts after him. Philippians 2, 6, or 5 and 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lord, I want your thoughts to penetrate my mind. Well now, friend of mine, that's a great prayer. But how do I put that into action? Well, according to verse 2 here, if I'm willing to meditate on God's law day and night, I'm going to start thinking God's thoughts. If I sit and watch 
certain kinds of movies, and I let that become the absorbing concern of my thought life for two hours, that's what I'm going to think. If my mind is full of TV or Time magazine or the newspaper, and none of which in themselves are wrong, but if that controls my thought patterns, those are going to be my thoughts for that day. But if this Holy Bible becomes my delight and my reading habit and my memorization and my study, and as I listen to it, as it's preached and as it's read and as it's spoken over the radio, then I'm going to want to meditate in it and it's going to change me and I'll be known by that which I love. And now let's talk about the third verse because this is where he's coming from. Not only be known by the company you avoid and not only be known by that which you love, but be known by what you are. He shall be like a tree. You see, in verse 1, it's what I don't do. In verse 2, it's what I do do. But in verse 3, it's what I am. He shall be like a tree. And notice the three things about that tree. That tree is planted, that tree is prosperous, and that tree is permanent. Planted by the rivers of water, prosperous in that it brings forth fruit in season. And permanency, his leaf shall not wither. I think we spend so much time in our day concentrating on what we do that we forget that actions spring out of what we are, out of character. God's man is like a tree planted and prosperous and permanent. Leaf that shall not wither. Evergreen is another concept of it. Ever bearing fruit. Ever a blessing to other people. I was reading recently about apple trees that in the height of their fruitage when all those hundreds of apples are hanging, seeming just ready to drop to the ground, that tree needs a hundred gallons of water a day to sustain itself and all of its fruitage. And I look at an apple tree loaded with fruitage and I wonder, where in the world does it get a hundred gallons? I don't see the farmer standing there with a sprinkling system. No. Down underneath the ground, where no one can see, there are tens of thousands of little roots and rootlets going out many, many feet and yards to find hidden sources of water, and then tapping them, and then bringing it back through all of that system of the roots, and up through the trunk, and out to where the apples and the leaves are abiding. God says, Hey, Bob, that is a picture of your life. If you will let your root system go down deep, you will bear fruit upward. And you know, it's almost the law of the harvest. The deeper my root system, the more bountiful my fruit 
That's what I am. Nobody sees the root system. Nobody sees what's taking place in the leaf. Nobody understands what's really going on in the fruit, but we all enjoy it. And that's the Christian life. That's why David could be a happy man, because he was known by what he didn't do. He was known by what he loved, and David was known by who he was, the integrity of his heart and life. And so, in the following 149 songs, there is the story of the emotions of the blessed man who was like a tree. And may I just close with this thought, the ungodly are not so. Whereas the happy man is a tree, the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Have you been around a farm long enough to know what chaff is? It's whatever is left over from the grain and the straw. Chaff isn't even good straw. They keep the straw for bedding and for other purposes. The chaff is just the leftovers, the nothing. The ungodly are nothing. Oh, what a tragedy when God says, I want my people to be happy and to be known and to be something. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. The ungodly shall perish. This is the introduction to David's hymnal. Here he sets our priorities. He sets the tone and the theme for a God-centered life. How to stand with the godly. How to react to trials. Be willing to trust the Lord regardless of circumstances. Here he has the desire to walk with God, to think with God, to live with God. And here in these songs is the steadfastness of a man who believes truth. Several years ago, I put together a little book on the Psalms. And it's called A Challenge to Men from Psalms. And then as I started working through the book of Psalms, I realized that it's a challenge to men, but I renamed it. And I call it, Has Life Given You a Lemon? Make Lemonade. And it's oftentimes in life, there seems to be that which is sour and bitter and undesirable and unwanted. And yet God says, Hey, why don't you take that, mix a little bit of sugar in, a little cup of cold water, stir it real good, and you know it'll be a sweet, wonderful, refreshing cup of lemonade. And God has a way of taking the experiences of Psalms and making them into lemonade. I'd love to send you this little booklet. It'll be a gift from me to you. 
just write to me. The announcer at the end of the message will tell you where to write here in Colorado Springs. Just write and tell me you'd like to have the little book, Has Life Given You a Lemon? Make Lemonade. Or just write the word lemon. (laughs) I'll know what you meant. But this will help you for 31 days just learning how to make lemonade out of some of the things in life that have been rather unhappy, displeasing, and sour. But it all begins right back here. How could David be a happy man? How could David make lemonade out of so many of the things in his life? Let's pray about it, shall we? Father, thank you for this privilege of sitting at your feet and learning from you and from what David sang so many years ago from Psalm 1. Speak to our hearts. Make it a blessing. Help us to be the happy man, the one in 10,000. In your name, amen. Thank you, Bob. The happy life for today is an exciting possibility. May the book of Psalms become more a part of our daily reading program. If you would like further copies of this tape or others by Bob Foster, just write to Challenge Books Limited, Post Office Box 580, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80901. And by the way, Bob writes a bi-monthly letter entitled, A Challenge to Men. Many have found this letter to be a great spiritual stimulator for themselves and their friends. When you write for a booklet entitled, Has Life Given You a Lemon? Make Lemonade? Perhaps you would like to be added to the challenge mailing list. There's no charge. The same address for both tapes and booklets, Post Office Box 580, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80901. Thank you and have a good day.